Hello, Gregoire. Hello, Edgard. How are things with you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty okay, thank you. So here we are today, and uh, what's in our podcast, Gregoire? Today we are going to talk about climate change. It's not only us talking about that, we have a guest. Suzanne Kasuf is with us. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you very much, Edgard and Gregoire. Hello. It's wonderful to have you here. Hi, Susan. It's so nice to be here. I've been a fan of your podcast from the beginning. Oh, thank you. Flat three will lead you everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how are you doing, Susan? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here today. As usual, people can write to us at discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me or send us a comment to our forum on Facebook, Twitter or SoundCloud. Let's get to it. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Francisco Danielson. And I'm Susan Kasuf. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Susan, again, welcome to our podcast. Tell us a little bit about who you are. What do you do? Like the both of you, I uh, am a practicing psychoanalyst, as we all met at NPAP. I've had several lives before that. I was an academic for a while and then worked in the nonprofit and foundation world for many years and have been on a kind of psychoanalytic journey throughout that time. And I'm very happy to now be practicing this art and craft and also practicing it in a time of the sixth extinction and joining it with what has been a deep concern for me also for several decades, which is what is happening on our planet. And so I am still on that journey, but it feels like some of those threads have been coming together more in my life as I have deepened my study of psychoanalysis and as we've all become more aware of what is happening happening and what we are doing to our planet. As we are already starting to talk about today's theme being climate change, for our audience, would you be able to differentiate weather and climate so that we have a better sense of what we're talking about and what we are not talking about? Most basically, we could understand climate as long-term patterns in the atmosphere and weather as the more immediate changes in the atmosphere that we pick up on as humans. I think one of the questions behind your question might be, how do we think about scale. Mm -hmm. When we think about climate change, which seems so huge, or we think about geologic time, which, you know, like the unconscious, doesn't wear a wristwatch. And how do we think about our daily lived experience? And I'm interested in those moments where we can move between climate and weather, where we're picking up that the rain we're seeing is very different than the rain we might have been experiencing in our lifetimes 30 years ago, for example. From what you were telling us a few moments ago, this has been a journey for you, meaning your interest in climate change and what's happening on our planet. Can you give us some pointers of how that evolved in your life, how you got connected and in what ways it caught your attention? 
I'm not an environmentalist. I'm also not a particularly earthy, crunchy sort of person. But I just noticed in my lifetime, my childhood, what the weather and being outside was like. Watched it change over time and watched snow disappear and heat happen in months where it didn't used to happen. And so I think that was a kind of lived experience. And then it started to come together with just what I was reading about and an awareness probably in the 2000s and onward of what was actually happening and feeling terror and not understanding, not being able to make sense of what I was reading, although seeing around me sort of signs of change and then also feeling like I couldn't find anybody else who was feeling the same way in my worlds mm -hmm. and not understanding why, not understanding why aren't more people upset? How? Why am I seeing stuff and I don't feel other people are? And I think that was also part of my decision to become an analyst of trying to unite what I was experiencing in analysis, which was an introduction to an extraordinarily beautiful and deep way of being in the world and connecting with other human beings, with what I thought was happening on the planet. I entered more formally into the field thinking that psychoanalysis would be the place where people were doing this thinking because they're spending time with the human psyche and making sense of things. So I think it was with that hope I also came to training. Full spoiler alert. How did that go? <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, yeah, I guess it's been an evolving journey, I'll say. I think I was very naive that I approached the field with that hope. That was part of my own idealization. And I would say over the last five or six years, I've really found communities of people and of analysts who are thinking about this and struggling with their feelings and taking action in different ways. And that particular feeling of being alone with it is no longer at the forefront. And I'm really grateful to that and my colleagues and friends in that world. And I also think over the last 10 years, it's impossible to ignore climate change anymore. I mean, there was a time when it was just never mentioned at all, which was maddening. And now I think it's from the highest levels in government to anybody on the street people are aware of it or experiencing it in their different ways, maybe also through denial. Yes, that's going to be a big chunk of that. Yeah. <laughs> From the perspective of listening to my patients, I have noticed changes in how the seasons and the ways we experience the seasons are, have been changing. That's true. But in the psychoanalytic room, the themes connected to planet Earth, to climate, to politics surrounding climate policies and so on and so forth, that is now coming to the fore, which is not something that I used to hear decade ago. From that perspective, I think it's both the groups of psychoanalysts that are now considering the questions, but also our patients are experiencing similar anxieties or questioning the politics around climate change and so on and so forth. Gregoire, I don't know if your patients bring that up, Climate change per se is something I'm interested in. In general, I'm interested in how humans react with their environment. And climate change is a big expression of how humanity as a whole failed in that effect. So, so that's personally something I have in mind and I've had in mind for quite some time. But in my practice... I feel like it's fairly recent. 
mm-hmm. to have people talk about it and talk about their anxiety. I'm surprised too how some people don't talk about it at all. And in such cases, I'm wondering why. Is it me who is too anxious? Is it uh, my patients who are more connected to uh, their everyday realities than I am? So I, I struggle to understand exactly where that stands. I also wonder if maybe those the patients who don't talk about it I might still be influenced by that. Because as we know, as analysts, but also as patients ourselves, in a session, you don't talk about everything that's happening to you. You talk and you follow the stream of your consciousness and you try to free associate. And even if you come multiple times a week, it always leaves aside a lot of uh, your awakening and even uh, sleeping thoughts. My thought is also that I think the whole culture of psychoanalysis is infiltrated enough that people don't always feel comfortable bringing the more than human environment into it. They maybe know how therapy works, and it's sort of a focus on the human interactions. And so it's maybe not always clear to people that this is also a topic. And we also, I myself do this as well, and I'm struggling for ways that this is a part of our lived reality as well, that that is part of the analytic space. You brought up a term that you frequently use in the papers you wrote about the subject, a more than human environment. Yes. Let's talk more about that. So Susan, you wrote a few articles about uh, the question of climate change and from a psychoanalytic perspective. One of them is a new thing under the sun. Mm-hmm. The other one for Division 39 on March 19, 2021. It was actually a paper given, and I don't have the name of the paper. <laughs> Because it was a talk, I didn't give it a title, but the title would be Thinking Catastrophic Thoughts, A Traumatized Sensibility on a Hotter Planet. I think it gives a mood right okay. away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trigger warning for our audience. This might be an anxiety-provoking podcast, but I think it's very important for you to listen to it. So do what you can. So, Susan, can you first maybe go back to the more-than-human environment notion that you just brought up before? Harold Searles wrote a really important book in the early 60s on the non-human environment and schizophrenia. And so that is the first time I became aware of how to talk about that idea, the non-human environment. When I started to think about it more, I didn't like the feel of split that that held, as if there's human and non-human and they're separate. And I Mm -hmm. was looking for some sort of idea idea that humans could be embedded in. So what I came up with was more than human. And I later learned that David Abram, who is a stunning eco-phenomenologist who wrote a very important book called The Spell of the Sensuous in the mid-90s, also uses the phrase more than human. So, And I have a feeling many people come to this formulation on their own. But I think it's a way of talking about the environment that does not separate us off, but acknowledges that we are inseparable from the environment. And you've been talking about the catastrophic thinking, which is also a key concept, I think, in your writings. Tell us more about that. Yes, it's a little bit playful in the sense that usually people are told to stop catastrophizing and Mm -hmm. that catastrophic thinking is a sign of pathology. I think given the circumstances of what we know is happening, it's an entirely appropriate response. I go back to the etymology of catastrophe, a kind of overturning, and I think that is what is happening to our world uh, as we know it, as human civilization knows it, that it is being overturned and possibly 
being made uninhabitable for many life forms. And I am reaching, I guess, to see if we can overturn our thinking as well. So that is where the notion of catastrophic thinking is coming from. It's also playing a little bit with Beyond's ideas on the necessity of forming thoughts and forming them, I think, with someone else in the case of analysis, maybe with your analyst, that together you are thinking and able to think and hold however fleetingly, because I really think it is sort of a self-state we enter into and move out of because it's just too painful to stay there, but to think catastrophically. If I understand correctly, then to think catastrophically, you may experience a spike in anxiety during that state, as liminal as it can be, but it's still a spike in anxiety that needs to be contained and processed. Is that in part what you are trying to convey? Yes, anxiety, terror, dread, despair. Fear of annihilation. Yes, I'm drawn to Melanie Klein's idea of the depressive position here, and I think a lot of people thinking about climate change find that attractive. I also find myself wanting to push it and say, this is beyond depression. This is loss on a scale many of us can't conceive of. I think it's almost a despairing position. What's the connection with the depressive position? of coming to terms with loss, of sort of stopping the split. That makes sense, yeah. How do you connect that with climate change? That some people would say it's fine because you have to learn how to mourn? Not that they would say it's fine, but that they would say we need to stop these defensive splits of denial or disavowal and we need to live with, acknowledge, and I think also act upon these losses. I think the energy of that acknowledging the loss I connect with in the sense of overturning our thinking, my intuitive sense is a depressive position is not enough, that a kind of despairing position might be more appropriate to the enormity of what we face. And the depressive position requires, as you say, the resolution of a split. What would be the split here, meaning this is a beautiful world and this is doomed to death at the same time? Or is it a different kind of split? I think it would be many, many different kinds of splits happening, you know, because I think for some people, it's, it's also not a beautiful world. I think this is also where environmental justice comes into that, that some of our shielding even from environmental destruction is linked in with race and other sorts of privilege that I've not experienced it, but I know it's happening and will be happening. I think a most basic split would be, I don't want to know that this is going on with climate change and I cannot act on it and I cannot mitigate or adapt. So how do you listen to that in a clinical setting? What do you advise people to listen to and maybe how to integrate that? What are your thoughts about that? I listen softly for moments that I think are connected to this. I'm very cautious about imposing something that is of great concern to me onto someone who is coming for reasons of their own pain or suffering. And it's not that I might not see some of their own pain or suffering as interwoven with what is happening on the planet and the mindset behind what is happening on the planet with a certain sort of defensive way of being in the world. I think one place where I do go is the notion of permeability, and that's sort of where my own thinking is at the moment. I think of psychoanalysis maybe in a very reductive way, beginning with a one-person psychology, that it's happening within a kind of ego-id, super-ego. I think you can find examples in even early psychoanalysts where that's not the case, but just reductively. And then it moves to a two-person psychology. There are two people in the room. 
then a social third comes in. Mm -hmm. And I think the relational school, as I understand it, and all of these schools, which I think have so much to offer, that the relational is between two entities. And I think where I want to go is to where the entities are always already permeated by each other in macroscopic and microscopic ways. And so an image I work with with people is to be open for moments of permeability rather than feeling that they need to hold everything that is happening, but that they can be open for this flowing through them. And I think Although I don't link it to climate change in a session, I am linking it in my own mind to what is a kind of thinking that might help us acknowledge what is happening and acknowledge how we got here, where we are separate from our environment versus inseparable from it. I was thinking about how recently someone mentioned how he felt some anxiety about using too much electricity, about taking the plane too much to travel from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And I think in those moments, my take is if people want to consume less carbon-related energy, that's perfectly fine with me. Mm -hmm. I would actually encourage everybody to turn to solar or renewable energy when possible. But from a psychonetic perspective, I pointed out how there was a, from what I could hear, the disconnect between the amount of responsibility my patient was connecting to himself and actually the situation. And so I pointed out that yeah, certainly you should try that, but maybe we could think about also how he was living within a system and that uh, we should try to put what he's doing inside a chain that is much bigger than himself. Mm -hmm. To me, this goes back to the catastrophic thinking mm. and how it's actually impossible to get there or impossible, maybe uh, like everything else, but it's so difficult to get there. Because what I heard also is that in that moment, it's so much easier to believe that we have power mm -hmm. over what we're experiencing mm -hmm. compared to what I believe that is probably a bias in some of my work to be the situation is that as individual, we have nothing almost to do. I can stop drinking. I can stop using a car for the rest of my life. Climate change is not going to be altered one bit by my behavior. Mm -hmm. I think in um, 2018, uh, there was a study indicating that 100 companies were producing 71% of the global emissions, mm -hmm. which gives a scale thinking that we can fix it as an individual might be partially because it's always interwoven with other things an expression of how one can manage the anxiety related to so hard to think changes that are happening what you're saying i hear a lot you know what what individual can do is really nothing it's the corporations or it's our whole energy system i think there might be room for both and in the same way we wouldn't like whether or not you treated one particular individual well or not might have no impact on a large public policy. You wouldn't intentionally be micro-aggressively racist to someone, I suspect, consciously. But, but whether or not you do that doesn't dismantle the entire system of racism and public policy we need to correct and reparations and things like that. But you wouldn't say, well, then my microaggression doesn't matter at all. Well, that was not my point. Should people pollute on an individual level and doing so like crazy? No. And yes, let's be nice to each other because yeah. it's going to have effects. But the question of the pace, yeah, I did not include that clearly. The question of the pace is at the center to me in the sense that, yes, we should individually be responsible. Certainly, yes. that would help. But it's going to trickle down very slowly. Oh, I 
completely compared agree. to the anxiety I was facing from my patient being like, okay, I'm going to do that with what I heard, and I might be wrong, the fantasy that it might have actually an effect, right? a concrete effect. Right. Should this person be more conscious about his way of life and uh, carbon monoxide emissions? Yes, certainly. But to understand the scale of it. I agree. And I also wonder in that case, is our own narcissism offended because we don't see an effect of our actions? Mm, probably, yes. I agree. I think we have nine years to drastically reduce our carbon emissions. And I don't see the signs that that's actually going to happen. So on that level, you could say that about many anxieties that people that we all are feeling that we are artfully rearranging the deck chairs. And still, this work is important. And still, the people we work with are our focus. And human societies have to drastically change their habits in nine years. Yes. Most likely it's not going to happen. Yeah. And so there we go. We move into the catastrophic thinking. Yes. I have just a few patients who actually openly mention climate change. And the way I work with catastrophic thinking is actually to take it on. Yeah. So that, that's me. Uh -huh. Is to say, yes, you might be anxious that life as we know it will disappear. Mm -hmm. And you might be right. Mm -hmm. Instead of telling them that they're crazy, mm -hmm. that they should stop being so anxious right. and that everything is going to be fine. Because from what we're seeing, it's extremely unlikely that the changes that will need to happen will happen. Well, now what you are saying goes back to something that I have mentioned before with COVID. It's Nancy McWilliam who says in the context of COVID, we're dealing with an external threat. And therefore, this is not neurotic anxiety. We are dealing with an external trigger that is reality. It's not the typical anxiety that sometimes we treat in our psychoanalytic offices. In the moment of COVID, during the pandemic, when someone says, I'm afraid of COVID, I don't think we go immediately to the, oh, this is neurotic anxiety. <laughs> oh, you <Yeah>. don't? <laughs> You don't say, man, you know, take or, some or as you have said, Greg White, someone who in New York City says, oh, the subway is full of germs. You would not... Yeah. Well, that needs uh, to be analyzed. That, <laughs> that is, who would say that? That is reality. That's, uh, so I think with climate change, when someone experiences this catastrophic thinking, that is coming from the same place, meaning that the interaction with the reality, not something that comes from a place of fantasy, let's say. <laughs> and you know what, God, what you just said reminds me that, I mean, I agree with her, that the COVID is a specific thing that we should not just take in terms Correct. of fantasies. But there are some people who are highly affected by that from a fantasy standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I would assume that the same people who are denying COVID are also denying climate change. <laughs> mm. Do you have any thoughts, Susan, on how those, I mean... We're going to summarize what people might think. Okay, so we're going to enter some weird area of psychoanalysis, but still, at least to keep on thinking. What do you think is happening for people who are reacting in such a way, who are politically positioning themselves to say, no, this is not happening? Well, and I also think COVID is related to climate change, as I understand the science. So there's a mm -hmm. yeah, logic to that denial yes, <laughs> yeah. or a consistency to that denial. 
the place I go and the place I was going when Edgard was speaking about it is one of the many hard things about thinking about climate change. It's, it's not just an external threat. We are contributing to it. We are a part of it. We are a part of it with mm. our lifestyles. Mm-hmm. We are, I think, also a part of it with our conceptual frameworks all the time. It's almost impossible to extricate ourselves from them. And I think the place where I went with this is to try and find a way to name it so I could work with it in myself and in my thoughts and clinically. So the idea that I'm working with this is the notion of an an environmental orientation, a sort of way of being in the world that really brackets out the more than human environment. And I think you can see it very strongly, say, in maybe climate deniers, but I can also see it very strongly in myself, or I can see it in the way we live, where it's just we have created sort of insulated bubbles that we don't have to interact so much with the more than human. We have it under control. We have climate control in our spaces. I mean, we live in cities. What's interesting to me is that a lot of climate change denier or COVID deniers, at least in the U.S., they live in parts of the U.S. that are not in cities, mm-hmm. that are actually a lot more affected by climate change. Look at Florida. Yes. Look at Texas. Those places that are immensely affected by already, Mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. And we are at the low scale of climate change. It's going to get even worse. Because I had the same thought you just described, Susan. Like, yeah, I'm in a city. I rarely encounter nature. I don't have to hunt for my food. I don't have to worry about uh, wearing or coal for crops, for uh, getting cereals, etc. I am indeed in many ways disconnected. Yet, I feel very personally connected with this question. Mm. And I see people who live in places that are very affected by climate change denying it, a lot of them. And so my thinking went to... Like, are we also dealing with, as, as we theorize in psychoanalysis that death is impossible to conceptualize, mm-hmm. per se, mm-hmm. our own death, are we experiencing the same thing with a potential death of our civilizations? How the same idea is unthinkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, one place I go, I remember reading the newspaper in 20, I mean, I still read it, but 20 years ago, where you would see farmers talking about what were happening to their crops. It would be sort of at the bottom of an article of how things were, you know, not what they used to be. There was sort of a description of climate change happening and an acknowledgement Mm -hmm. without an awareness. But it was there. It was traceable. And the other person I'm thinking of is Renee Lertzman, who's written a book called Environmental Melancholia. I think that's the name of it. And she interviews people in Wisconsin about what seems like apathy toward the more than human environment. And instead, in through her qualitative interviews, suggests that actually this is a melancholia, an, a real awareness of what's going on, but an inability to be with it in the way that you're suggesting you have found. I was actually thinking along those lines, listening to you, about how climate change, the effects can be somewhat visible, but the line of causation Mm -hmm. is invisible. Mm -hmm. You need to really think about the fact that using cars, planes, armies will actually create something. The fact that we burn forests on the other side of the earth is actually going to affect you. Mm -hmm. How the disappearance of bees will affect you. Mm -hmm. It's such a complex line of causalities that it seems hard to put together. 
I agree <laughs> very, very much, uh, especially for someone who's not a scientist or not someone living those realities. Yes, I think those chains, the ways in which we are permeable and connected to the world around us are very hard to think. And so going back to your idea of thinking about the more than human, yeah. and I think it's an interesting concept or a way to put it in a sense that to bring back how we are animals mm -hmm. and not exceptional. Yes. I mean, we are exceptional in the sense that, yeah, we develop consciousness, mm. but we can look where it led us, <laughs> <laughs> which might be self-extermination. Mm. But And how to for us to help our patients integrate how their humanity is interwoven with, well, with the rest of nature. Yes. So we have come to the end of this podcast with Susan Kasuf on climate change. It was the first of two. Mm -hmm. We'll see you next month. Until then. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.